Today's Old Testament teaching text is Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And the New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then... When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were much more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord. We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, and when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. Will you pray with me? God, there is so much in your word for us today, and I pray that you will help us to hear 
what it is you long for us as your church to hear on this day, in this place, as this community. Would you give us ears to hear? Give us hearts that can receive. Give us eyes to see your face in one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Well, I was pretty sure that I wanted to go to college for youth ministry. Okay, that was my initial plan. And, uh, you know, youth are interesting, aren't they? They're, they're, I'm glad Maggie does this. They're complicated, they're strange, they're wonderful, there's drama, and there's like some very serious, tangible life transformation that happens in that stage of life. So I thought I wanted to study youth ministry until I had my first church history class. See, church history makes youth ministry look mundane. I mean, talk about complicated and strange and drama and life transformation. If you're bored, start reading some church history. Uh, In in all of church history, there's hardly a topic more strange and mysterious and complicated than communion. People have spilled blood over communion. And more recently, last 500 years, uh, churches have split over it. You might know a church that's split over the idea of communion. Denominations have split over it, been born over the idea of communion. People have been killed by Christians over their beliefs about communion. Or you might already be mad at me because I didn't call it the Lord's Supper. Or Eucharist. But especially since the Reformation, this meal that's supposed to unite the church around a table has tragically divided us. It's tragically divided us. And if you're someone who's, who's into theology and things like that, you've probably spent some time studying, learning about transubstantiation and consubstantiation. You maybe have gotten into the, the spiritual mysterious presence view Or perhaps the memorialist view. There's been different ways that theologians and philosophers have tried to figure out if and how Christ is present in this meal. And many people got caught up throughout history asking the question, how does the bread literally become the body of Christ? How does wine actually become Christ's blood. And they started asking questions. Is is it that the substance is changed? And they started wondering, well, if it's really changed, why doesn't the wine all of a sudden, you know, taste more metallic? Why doesn't it taste like blood? 
and, and so on. These nuanced questions. And then they've asked, is there anything unique about this ritual? Is there anything that's special that happens here at all? And if not, why do we do it? Is it just a big hassle? These were and still are serious questions for Christians throughout history, and I don't mean to belittle them. Uh, Medieval theologians, they discussed these things relentlessly, ad nauseum. They developed intense rules and regulations for handling the elements. Uh, I don't know what they would have done in the time of COVID. They would not be happy with these little plastic uh, cups and wafers. There would have been a rule against it for sure. Uh, They had all these rules. In fact, imagine medieval ages, you're walking up to receive communion from the priest, and you trip and bump him, and he spills the wine on the floor. Oh, you are in big trouble. They had a whole set list of regimented punishments for you. Why? Because you just wasted the actual saving blood of Christ. You poured it on the floor. Uh-uh. And some people, you know, they'd come up, they'd get their piece of bread for the day, and then they'd sneak an extra one, put it in their pocket. If they were an entrepreneur, they'd sell it to someone else. But otherwise, they'd keep it for themselves until they got sick. And then they'd take it like medicine, right? Because well, this is the body of the great physician, you know, it was almost like a talisman. This thing has that sort of power. And while these debates were mostly in the medieval ages, they change in the Reformation, they go a bit further back as well. Um, but I'm interested in what St. Augustine of Hippo thinks about this. He was, he was the bishop of Hippo, and he was asking a different question. He certainly had his own views and thoughts about how this becomes the body of Christ for us. But he was more concerned with how we, the church, become the body of Christ. He says that in communion, you become the body of Christ. You become what you consume. You are what you eat. It's about formation for him. And so this is what he says. This was in a third century Easter sermon. Augustine says, If you receive the Eucharist well, you are what you eat. As you come to communion, you hear the words, The body of Christ. And you answer, Amen. Be therefore members of Christ, that your Amen may be true. Be what you see. Receive what you already are. Augustine says that the Eucharist, that communion, is nourishment to us for what we already are. We are already united to Christ through faith and baptism. So we're already united with him. In communion, we're being united. He's saying, just be what you already are. Each time we receive communion, we grow in that shared life of faith. We become more of the person that we already now are. So communion is a spiritually formative meal. It's a spiritually formative meal. I wonder, have you ever thought of communion that way? 
Have you ever thought of communion as something that actually forms you more and more into the image of Jesus? I want to point out two ways that uh, this new meal, communion, is a spiritually formative meal. First, communion becomes formative when it becomes our collective memory. Our collective memory. By this I mean that communion helps us to shape our stories. To form our identity and mold our imaginations together as first and foremost a Christian people. Our identity making story isn't that we're the people who voted for the same candidate. Or listened to the same music. I like choirs. I hate choirs. I, that's not What makes our identity? It's not that we shop at the same grocery store or drink or don't drink the same beer. We're the people who by his life, death, and resurrection have been given a seat at the table. Our collective memory is the cross and that unites us. And this is why Jesus builds communion, he institutes communion into an already existing part of the Jewish people's history. Because the story is so important. In Matthew 26, where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, it says in verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which is Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And then the story continues. They go up in the room, and he institutes the meal. So when we talk about the first communion meal, we must take seriously the fact that Jesus is having at least some portion of the Passover Seder with his disciples. And the Passover Seder was the primary part of Israel's collective memory. This meal told them who they were. In fact, they were commanded in Exodus 12 and 13 to begin their whole story, their whole understanding of themselves at Passover. For the sake of time, I will not read all of Exodus 12 and 13, but I want to highlight a handful of the verses. The whole thing would be applicable to this. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, the very structure of time, the very structure of Israel's year is to be formed by the remembering of their story in Exodus. Verse 3, skip to verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. All that just to show that this is a collective meal, right? Everybody in the community of Israel is to play a part in this and is to have a piece of this meal. Skip to verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. 
That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. So for Israel, the meal revolves around lamb, these lambs that they're to slaughter. And here we see the the main ingredients, blood, which goes over the doorpost, lamb, these bitter herbs, and bread. Continuing on, I know I'm going quick through it. Verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood becomes... Such a key symbol of God's deliverance. His saving of the Jewish people from bondage and oppression. Verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. And I love that word, commemorate. Literally, to remember alongside one another. Remember together. Commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Verse 17, again, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Why is God so concerned about this feast lasting forever? Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. God is saying to them, Israel, this needs to be your story. It needs to be your collective, your shared, your communal memory. You need to tell your kids, and they need to tell their kids, and they need to tell their kids, and they need to tell their kids, because this is their story. And the further it goes down the generations, you need to tell them more because they're not going to believe it. They weren't there for it. The Passover is an act that symbolized to the Jewish people their story of deliverance. And God is adamant that they'd better remember it collectively. He's saying to them, remembering this meal will form you into faithful Jews. Don't stop doing it. And then Jesus takes this symbol of the Jewish story of deliverance and he reinterprets it with himself as the climax. The bread, he says, is his body. There's wine now, which is the blood of this new covenant. And there's no lamb Because he himself is the pure and spotless lamb offered for our salvation. For those at the Last Supper, 
which were Jews who have intentionally been formed as a people with a shared memory, these symbols of bread and wine are loaded. They're charged with meaning and purpose. Uh, There's an artist who might help us in understanding this. Okay, her name is Deborah Sperber, and she might help us see this from another angle. And rather than me explaining her whole process, we're going to watch a video where she explains her whole process. Okay, I want you to pay attention to how she uses memory to create meaning in her work. Let's watch. This is a life-size recreation of a Warhol soup can. From a distance, it will definitely look like a tomato soup can. You'll even be able to read the word tomato. But up close, it will just break apart into abstraction. I create often very large-scale works using thousands of ordinary objects, such as spools of thread. Chenille stems, also known as pipe cleaners. Marker pen caps. Swarovski crystals and other mass-produced objects. Sperber is interested in the way artists use technology. Her work looks at the digital image and its smallest component, the pixel. All of my current body of work is created by deconstructing an image into pixels and then translating the pixels into the palette of each particular material and then reconstructing it by hand into the original image. She uses mass-produced objects to represent individual pixels. The thread spool is a favorite material for this technique. I started compiling a list of things that reminded me of pixels and yet were very sculptural. They were beautiful objects in and of themselves, readily available, and had a wide color palette. And thread spools naturally rose to the top of that list. The spool of thread is such a beautiful object in and of itself. It really, I mean, anybody that's ever walked through a craft store and hasn't noticed uh, the satiny finish of a spool of thread uh, hasn't lived. <laughs> Today, Sperber is using thread spools to make a deconstructed image of Star Trek's Mr. Spock. Basically, what you're seeing here is a thread spool assembly station and there's a partially assembled map with each color uh, corresponding uh, to a map and also to the spool of thread. And how this whole process begins is I start with a JPEG, a digital image, and any JPEG is constructed from up to thousands and thousands of pixels. So what I do is I break that uh, JPEG down into an exact number of pixels so that each pixel corresponds with one spool of thread. So in this case, this is 29 pixels wide, and that will be the number of columns on this piece. And I now have a custom software program that helps me translate pixels into whatever palette, in this case, spools of thread. So through a very labor-intensive process, I enter in all the colors of a palette and basically can just push a button and have a JPEG from Photoshop translate into the maps that you're seeing here. So each one of these spools of thread corresponds to a specific pixel in my original image. 
there's something about taking a lowly material and kind of raising it up to, if you want to still refer to fine art as high art, that's kind of a nice uh, juxtaposition. That is the final product. And this is kind of like a very enlarged JPEG in a sense, that you're actually focusing on the individual units of color versus the whole image. The work is completed when Sperber sets up a viewing device. But what happens in the viewing sphere is that it shrinks or condenses those pixels back into their photographic origin. So you can actually see how radically different the image looks when it's expanded and contracted. And it shows just how limited our human perception is, that you subtly shift scale and yet our interpretation of reality changes. In one case, looking at abstract spools of thread, abstract blocks of color, and whereas here you have you know, the focus being more on the recognizable image. But there's another aspect of the sphere that interests me, that it functions like the human eye in that it inverts imagery, like the retina. And it functions like the human brain in that it's taking this raw data that makes no sense at all and it's assembling it into something recognizable. This work is a life-size interpretation of the Mona Lisa. And if you look directly at the thread, you could see that there is very little information there. But what you're seeing in the viewing sphere is how little information your brain needs to recognize an image that it's already been exposed to. And one of the things that most people find particularly baffling about this piece is that you can actually make out her facial features in, in a very subtle way. In fact, this is all there is. There's, there's no face at all. So it's actually a perfect demonstration in how our brain is actually projecting an image that it doesn't exist out there in the world like we think of. Very few paintings can be transformed into such a small thread spool work and still function. The reason this functions is because we all know what the Mona Lisa looks like. So if you'd never seen the Mona Lisa, which I've never met a person who hasn't, who knows what they'd see, but they wouldn't be seeing the Mona Lisa. It is because Sperber chooses such recognizable subjects that these barely there images are identifiable. She's used this technique to reproduce some of the world's most familiar images, from iconic paintings by Warhol, Vermeer, Monet, and Picasso, to representations of The Last Supper and Marilyn Monroe. A neurologist friend in my studio was looking at a series of work and after studying it for a while, he goes, oh, this is neurological priming. And so, of course, I wrote the word down and looked it up to see what it meant. And it basically describes how the brain learns to make sense of visual imagery that it hasn't been exposed to. So like a baby first sees the two black dots and then finally realizes, oh, that's, you know, mom. And that's going to mean, you know, she's going to provide whatever I need. So then, you know, the baby, you're seeing them build their memory uh, so they can understand the raw data that makes up the, the physical world. And the more I've learned about neurology, the more it informs my work to create more kind of surprise. It just kind of ends awkwardly, I know. Um, but I love her process so much. Catch it, she said she uses these common 
mundane objects like spools of thread, which become so much more beautiful and grand when they're combined together. And then she places them through that viewing sphere, which reconstitutes them. It puts them together into an image we can actually recognize, an image that she's referencing. I love this. Though it only works, she says, if you're already familiar with the image. You have to have a memory of it. That image of the Mona Lisa, if you didn't have a memory of the Mona Lisa, she said, it's just going to look like those spools of thread. To me, the connections are so obvious to the Lord's table. In communion, Jesus uses these mundane objects of bread and wine, bread and juice, the two most common food staples in the ancient Near East. But because of the Jewish memory of Passover, they paint the grand picture of salvation. These are like little pixels that paint the picture of salvation. So what we have is the opportunity to find our common identity in that stream of shared memory that is now the Christian story, anchored in Jesus' cross and resurrection. This is why, part anyways, I think, of why communion is actually for those who already profess faith in Christ as Lord. Because similar to Sperber's work, if you don't have memory of Christ, if you don't have a memory of Christ, this is going to be pretty meaningless. It's going to be odd-tasting wafer and cheap-tasting juice. So really, if you're not Christian and you're wondering, why can't I? You're not missing out on much if you're not, okay? It will just be bread and juice. But for the Christian, this is our story of salvation. This is why Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. Christ is meant to be our collective memory. And in a world where the church is more divided than united, communion is a gift to be cherished. When we take the time to remember collectively, we're being also put back together reunited through Jesus with our Father in heaven and reunited to one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's vertical and horizontal. Remembering together strengthens our bonds with God and each other. But when we don't have a shared story, when we don't have a shared story, a collective memory, we're actually broken off from one another. And from God. You know, the opposite of remembering isn't so much forgetting as it is dismembering, coming apart, shattering, community division. Uh, think for a moment of some of your family's most beautiful moments, the most important traditions that you have. 
Think about how they shape your understanding of one another in that family. How you love one another, what you value as important. It's because of your memories together that you have a family identity at all. And the same is true for us as the family of God. Imagine that you have two biological children, nine and ten years old, and you want to grow your family. You want to foster or adopt. And you want someone who's their similar age, eight, nine years old. Well, Christmas is coming up. You've adopted the child. The kids are so excited for Christmas. Every year, Dad puts the star on the tree. And they're telling jokes about, do you remember three years ago when Dad was trying to put the star on the tree and he tripped and the whole tree fell over? That was hilarious. And the new child, of course, confused, sitting there, left out, wondering what's the big deal, what's going on here. So what do you do? You start telling stories. You start telling stories. Well, this is what we always do. This is what happened last year. This is what happened the year before. This is why this is so important. This is what happened. You start inviting them in. Because as part of the family, this is now their story too. And it will take years, not just of telling the same story to the new child, but of having them participate in the new story, the new tradition. Having them participate in communion. It will take years. But then when they begin identifying with your family's stories what will start to happen is I think you'll notice they start acting like a member of your family as well. They start loving the way you love, laughing the way you laugh. Your stories will become their stories, which will become who they are. This is part of the importance of communion for our community. When this becomes our shared story, it will become who we are. We will become what we eat, become what we consume. In the Passover meal, Jews remember who they are. Through the rituals of the Seder, they become a part of that community going back to the slaves who left Egypt. The Lord's Supper for us is an identity-making meal of remembrance. And so communion is this act of collective remembering. It looks back. We look backwards with it. But it also looks forward because communion is also an anticipatory meal. It's a picture of the future that God has promised us. Because who's supposed to be able to come to this table? People of different classes, races, ethnicities, age, intellect, maturity, and faith all come together to share what Paul says of the one loaf. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, but I want to look back at our text today in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. One doesn't have enough, one has too much. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then skipping to verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Can you hear in Paul how unity is essential for communion to function as God requires? This is why I think it's a theological concern that the communion table is level. And why I like it on the, fl- on the ground, on your level. You might go to some churches and it's way back up here. It might even be like be- fenced in literally behind these gates things. This is for all of us. Do you remember when I was reading from Exodus 12, a whole bunch, not that long ago? Well, I got some more. At the end of the chapter, okay, verse 43, this is interesting. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you've circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have, not just themselves, all the males in their household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. Can you imagine that cell? Uh, You're a foreigner in Israel. Uh, You see this meal and you think, oh, some of that lamb, I'd like to have some of that. And like, okay, you and your whole household, all the men need to be circumcised. So you go back home. You're like, hey, uh, guys, (laughs) it's not an easy cell, right? There were rules about who could and who could not participate in the Passover, And I think you can see a lot of it comes down to the same thing that it came down to last week, circumcision. Mm. This is part of what makes communion a radically new meal. It's part of a new covenant. It's on a level table. The table is open to everyone and anyone who is open to Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, red and blue, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, angry and anxious, tired, terrified, laughing, lamenting, all in Christ are welcome at the table of God. I am profoundly affected by the story of Oscar Romero. Um, I don't know if you know his story. I want to share this as we come to a close. He was a prominent Roman Catholic priest in El Salvador 
during the 1960s and 1970s. And eventually he became Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. After witnessing numerous violations to human rights, he began to speak out on behalf of the poor and the victims of repression in his country. And this led to numerous conflicts, both from the government in El Salvador and within the Catholic Church. A few weeks after he became archbishop, one of his closest friends, who was a Jesuit priest, was murdered by a government-backed death squad. And Romero's reaction was deeply courageous. This is what he does. He's convinced of the community-shaping power of the kingdom meal, of communion. And so what he does, because he's the archbishop, is he decrees that on the next Sunday, there's only going to be one mass, only one communion service in the whole diocese, in the whole region. Okay, so one church will be open. Excuse me. All the rest of them will be closed. Everyone who wants communion has to come to the cathedral in downtown San Salvador. Now, some of the rich plantation-owning Catholics were appalled at this decree. They were thinking, who is this archbishop who will deny us our Sunday obligations? We have to go to Mass, and he's denying it to us. That is unchristian. His argument was that the rich can get in their cars and drive into the city and join us at communion. The poor in San Salvador cannot get in their cars, they do not have them, and drive to it if we have it out in the country somewhere. So he's trying to bring everyone together, but then these rich plantation owners would have had to stand in line in the sun in downtown San Salvador to take communion, because lots of people are going, only one church is open. And even worse, they would have had to take communion with a bunch of unwashed poor people. And this was his point. He knew that communion anticipated the kingdom, that everyone, rich and poor, needed to take communion together for the sake of unity and justice. He simply heeded Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. And here's the tragic irony of it all. Three years later, after he's speaking out against U.S. military support for the government in El Salvador, and he's calling for soldiers to disobey orders to kill innocent civilians... Archbishop Romero was shot dead by a sniper while he was celebrating Mass in the small chapel of the cancer hospital where he lived. He became the first Catholic bishop killed in a church since Thomas Beckett was murdered in Canterbury in 1170. You see, communion anticipates the future kingdom of God. 
And that can be dangerous. But it calls for radical unity among Christians. It's an anticipatory meal. It looks to the future and says, you can have a taste of it now. Do you want it? The bread and the cup, of course, they're just hors d'oeuvres. They're the pre-feast. They're supposed to stir in us great anticipation for this banquet that we're awaiting. We will see Christ face to face where his hand will be the one wiping away our tears, where sorrow, sickness, sin, and death will be no more. We heard this this morning. I'll read it again. Isaiah prophesies, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Amen.